I'm Mike Gorman, and you're listening to the Celtics Pod podcast for Celtics Blog. Here's your host, Adam Taylor. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Celtics Pod podcast. Happy Wednesday. As usual, I'm your boy, Adam Taylor. And as usual, I'm joined by my compadre, my homie, my co-host in crime, Mr. Will Weir. We're all kicking it, ready for game two of the playoffs. And most importantly, I don't know about you, Will, but I'm kind of still riding this high of the Marcus Smart Defensive Player of the Year award. I'm living life at the moment. It's a good time to be a Celtics fan. Good time. Oh, my God. I mean, from Tatum buzzer beater in game one, rolling right into your newly crowned Defensive Player of the Year, big ball one, Marcus Smart himself, it's kind of hard not to be riding that wave right now. Like you're, you're not really a Celtics fan if you're not riding that wave. And I think most are, cause I know everyone I've interacted with, whether it's, you know, via text or my phone or on Twitter, social media, it seems like we're all feeling those vibes right now. It's good vibes, good vibes only. Do you remember there was an episode we did recently that was called a precipice of a vibe. And I feel <laughs> like we're, we've, we've come over that precipice and we're well and truly like centered in this just like good vibrations man you know that's celebration anyway uh, before we start singing yeah (laughs) usually i save the singing towards the end of the show because a lot of people have probably tuned out by then um big shout out to everybody that hit me up uh, over the weekend who'd listened to the show and do you remember we were doing the discussion about when it was not a doctor at the end of scrubs or was it not at the end of scrubs and yeah what, what was the ending so I had a few people reach out to me. A few people were saying like, yeah, it's definitely at the end of Scrubs, but it's also at the end of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. <laughs> you know, another, like good, the, another good job. I like Scrubs more, but I like Brooklyn Nine-Nine too. See, I, see with, I love Brooklyn Nine-Nine, but like three episodes is enough. After that point, it gets irritating for me. Mm-hmm. And then that's so like, I enjoy it while I'm watching it. But once I'm three episodes in, I'm like, yo, a fourth one's just going to start grating on me. I need to take yeah. a break. Just because it's that, that wacky, stupid t- type of humor. Scrubs, on the other hand, I can I can binge a bit of Scrubs. Yeah, Scrubs I could binge, you know, over and over, and I have. And early on, I think I've mentioned it on here before, but like early on in the in the pandemic, Zach Braff and Donald Faison, who play Turk and JD in the show, they they had launched a podcast. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name. I think fake, no, no, uh, fake real friends, fake doctors is what I believe it is, and it's a fantastic podcast. And through that, I had started binging, you know, rewatching it with them as they're kind of going into the episodes, it just reminded me how much I love the show Scrubs. And it's just, it's one of those shows that, you know, it's actually made by, we've talked about Ted Lasso on the show. It's the same, it's the same guy that, that made, uh, that made Ted Lasso. And they have that very same like comedic, but like feel good vibe to it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Now, while you've been talking, one, love Ted Lasso. You guys got me hooked. If you remember, there was a few podcasts <laughs> that I was late to recording at the time. If there was, a duo, like an acting duo, and we will get to basketball. You know, we can, we could, we could tie it in right now, but I'm not going to. If there was an acting duo that have done a TV show over the years that I would want to bring a podcast out and do a rewatch of every episode, there is no one I can think of that I'd like more than Keenan and Cal. Ooh, that would be a good one. I was trying to think of, I was thinking you might go like, you know, Jim and Dwight from The Office or something like that. But Keenan and Kel is a great one. That would be really fun, actually, to like, from a nostalgic point of view, to go back, watch Keenan and Kel and and think of them as, you know, where they're at now in their lives and talking about what it was like. Because Keenan and Kel 
was, I mean, it hit some pretty crazy peaks when you think about, you know, I, I don't have the timeline exactly, but it was probably what mid to late nineties when, when Keenan and Kel was really popping off and they had Coolio in their intro song. And this is like, once again, right towards the peak of Coolio for a kid show and he's doing the intro with them. So I think that would be really dope to see the two of them get back together and do a, and do a, a podcast kind of rewatching those episodes. I like that. Thought. Man, that would be, that would be my number one wish list pod- podcast is a Keenan and Cal director's cut commentary through the episodes including good burger as your finales yeah like i was a big tom keenan and cal fan anyway we're not a movie podcast we're a celtics podcast <laughs> we could be though we could be well we can always talk about that uh, in a future date but more importantly you have to get to know us as hosts to enjoy our takes. I, I do feel like you know these five minutes before we start really diving into basketball talk just enriches the the friendships with yeah them. and you gotta ease in it's like getting into a pool right most of the time yeah. you kind of ease in just a little bit then you dive right in so that we're at the dive in stage now so let's jump in the deep end and let's talk a little basketball i mean dude i cannot swim so i'm not diving into oh really water. i didn't know that no, is that I, why you hate seafood too no i hate seafood because it tastes bad i can't <laughs> <laughs> like i can swim but like i'm not diving like i can swim but i'm not diving in like you know well, let me ask you this. So, because my girlfriend has the same issue where she says that she can't swim. I've seen her swim. She's just not like an Olympic swimmer. But to her, like her not doing like laps in a pool is like she can't swim. But like she's perfectly fine when we're in a pool or when she does get in water. I just think she's not a huge fan of it, but she can totally swim. So, like, if you were to like go on, I don't know, go to the ocean or go to a lake or go to a pool and you were in the deep end where you can't stand up, like, would you be okay? Yeah, there's no undercurrent. Okay. Yeah. So you, I mean, you can swim. You're just not. You just don't like swimming. It sounds like. Yeah, and I'm I'm a big dude. Remember, so like when yeah. I'm swimming, I splash. <laughs> you know what I mean, like I'm talking splash like, zone. Yeah, because I'm like I'm not graceful. Like you know, I'm very much like I'll smash my way through the water. Mm, so, gotcha. So like when you're at a public pool or you're on vacation and. You know, you're, you're, everyone else is swimming and they're gliding, and then I'm like, oh, like <laughs> you know, like um, what 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 movie is it? It's a kids film, and they've got the seals. Um, it's not Ice Age. I'm gonna find out in a moment. But you've got those big seals, and they're belly flopping on the ice to try and break the ice. Do you know what movie I'm talking about? I do not know which. I mean, you have Happy kids Feet so too. I've never seen. I know of Happy okay. Feet. I've never seen it, but yeah, no, I don't have Thank kids. You. I don't. <laughs> Just getting assists from the back room. I did. The wife gave me the assist, so we came with the assist. Mate. Shout out Zoe. But yeah, so that's so that's me, right? Like I can swim, but it's very, very ungracious, and that's kind of like you know, that's just me in general. Just like I don't do things too gracefully. So um, uh, it is I feel you're a bit clumsy myself, so I get it. Yeah, you know, sometimes you just I'm a, uh, again, I'm a big dude. I kind of just walk and just waddle my way through life. Anyway, six, six three waddling around. Look out! Yeah, well, six two, six three depends on how how I'm standing. I need to get a legit measurement. Last time I did it, I was in my twenties and I was like six two and a bit, and I feel like I've grown since then. It's either that or like people like my mum have shrunk. <laughs> she's a little lady anyway. She's like what five one, five two. She's little. Um. Anyway, talking about somebody else that's roughly my height, far better shape than me, but roughly my height. Is the defensive player of the year, Mr. Marcus Smart? Do you know what, man? I want to start with this. I want to start by being upset about the amount of people that spoke out against him. 
Yeah, I feel it's like, a little weird, right? Yeah, I feel like there's been a lot celebrating Marcus Smart, but I don't feel like there's been a lot of defending Marcus Smart. And when he's been doing so well defending for the Celtics and defending for Celtics fans for the last season, I think it's time somebody comes to his defense. So I want to start with this. There was a few tweets that went out there. A couple from fans of other teams. You kind of live with that, you know what I'm saying? And then a couple of from like other players, like I know Bam Adebayo said to the media that, you know, he feels he's being disrespected. He's doing the same as a lot of guys. Bam Adebayo's argument was, hey, I would have been in the final voting phase if I'd been in more TV games. The fact that I'm not on TV as much, blah, blah, blah. So that was Bam's argument. Um, Spolstra had a similar argument saying, like, tell me what he does doesn't do that the other guys do. But then you come across to like the analyst side, you got Nate Duncan that was very vocal, and I mean very vocal about Smart winning that that um, DPOY, saying Smart shouldn't have even been in the conversation. And then there was a couple of other analysts out there that kind of backed up what Nate was saying. How do you feel, man? Like because these guys, generally, like you tell me about somebody like like a Nate Duncan or at that level, and I'm generally like, yo, these guys know their ball. They watch a bunch of basketball far more basketball than what me or you watch mm-hmm. or, or at least that's the impression that i get you know for sure so but for that going against smart winning like that seems, just seems egregious to me i'm like you could disagree but you don't need to basically like trash his performances do you know what i'm saying yeah i feel like the forcefulness with with some of the responses from from some of the people that you've mentioned has has definitely taken me back a bit you know i i mentioned this a few weeks ago or, or maybe it's last week i don't know all the time runs together but you know defensive player of the year is is one of the hardest awards to vote on so i will say that i think i think the defensive metrics you know there's a reason this conversation had started about how they skew towards the big man and how it does make it really hard for for guards or wings to to really get their name in there because of the way that a lot of those you know the new age analytics are going to support big men and so i think you know when you look at the voting like there's a bunch of guys that got votes i mean i'm just looking right here as far as first plates First place votes go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven different guys got a first place vote. Typically, you know, when you look at MVP or you look at rookie of the year, it's usually no more than two to three, maybe four guys, seven guys, seven different guys got a first place vote. So to your point, you know, if you don't think Marcus Smart should have won, fine, you can make an argument for somebody else. I don't think that's entirely ludicrous, but to say he doesn't belong in the discussion. That, my friends, is extremely ludicrous. And that, I think, is, you know, it's it's a little weird for me when I see that response from, you know, from the guys that you mentioned. And and I think Nate Duncan said one thing that, that really stood out to me and was part of his reasoning for why he thought Marcus Smart shouldn't win the argument is he talked about kind of a media campaign. And we, and we, t- we talked about this a couple of weeks ago on the podcast that, you know, clearly the Celtics PR team was pushing and Marcus was kind of making the rounds. And just to be clear here, he wasn't the only one doing that. Multiple of these guys, Mikhail Bridges is associated with the old man in the three basketball podcast with JJ Reddick. You know, Bam Adebayo has been on a bunch. Jaron Jackson Jr. has been on different podcasts over the last couple of months. So it's not as if this is exclusive to Marcus. And absolutely, did they build a campaign around Marcus Smart and kind of push him for defensive player of the year? For sure. But you know what? So did a bunch of other teams for their guys around the league. And because that campaign seemed to gain momentum, which I do think, I do think there was a campaign, and I think that's totally fine. 
But I also don't think that that makes him undeserving of the award. He can be deserving, and there was a campaign, and those two can live, can coexist together, which is kind of part of Nate Dunn's point that he doesn't think that that the campaign is what got him hit and not his play on the court. And that, I think, is a disservice to what Marcus Smart has done all year on the defensive end for the Celtics. So I've got two thoughts on this, and I'm going to go with the more holistic one first, and then I'm going to go with the one, my, my personal opinion on these advanced stats. So my first one is, we're consistently like, you know, the modern era, the, the new generation of people, everybody's being encouraged to advocate for themselves. You know, if you think you're good at some advocate for yourself, if you don't advocate for yourself, nobody else is going to be advocating for you. Exactly. So to encourage that as a community, as like, as a people, everybody everywhere now is encouraging self-advocation to, to then have a problem with somebody winning an award based off the fact that they advocated for themselves, which is what we're trying to encourage people of all ages to do. That just seems like completely toxic to me in the first place. You know what I mean? Like I, I want everyone to advocate for themselves and don't get me wrong. I think there's a way you can advocate for yourself. that can, can sometimes come across unintendedly like, like it doesn't suit who you are. Like you have to be genuine when you're advocating for yourself. But I think Marcus Smart knew who knows who he is as a player knows what he brings to the table and he's very vocal about that i don't see a problem there as you said go out and you know it's not like smart was saying i'm the defensive player of the year current like primary runner but he's not backing it up on the floor this dude is putting in the work every night has been putting in the work every night so for him to go out and advocate for himself no one else was doing it for you bro like you have that's what you have to do you think mvp candidates if it's their first mvp run won't start won't start having discussions like that. We already saw Draymond Green begin advocating for Jason Tatum, trying to talk Jason Tatum into advocating for himself. Jason Tatum's already told Joel Embiid, if you don't win MVP next year, this year, you ain't getting it next year because that's me, bro. And he's advocating for himself this year, as he's been talking about for the last couple of weeks. Yeah, so I'm completely fine with that. When it comes to like, hey, you know, it's difficult because the advanced metrics. Now, here's my problem with advanced metrics. One, they do, they favor different parts of the floor. You know, if you look at like Raptor, Raptor favors more towards the big man. Uh, I also think that they're very inaccessible for the average NBA fan. So I think that unless you're very good at math or, you know, like not very good, but better than I am at math. And I don't consider myself to be a sledge. You know, you need to understand linear algebra for a lot of these. I'm going to raise my hand. I do not understand linear algebra. So I'm in that group. Yeah. So like you can look at these and you can contextualize like, hey, so someone's got a 12.4 rating of LeBron versus someone with an 11, a higher rating's good, that player's better. That's fine. But if you don't understand the math and what the, what the equation is working out to spit out that value, then you don't truly understand that advanced statistic. That's always been my outlook on it, right? You want to talk to me about Raptor, about... Um, what, what is a uh, what? What does Zach Lowe call these schlorps and vorps and yeah, and you've got, yeah, you've got vorp value over replacement player. Um, you've got all these things, and I just think unless you understand the the, the algorithms that generate these statistics, you're not really truly understanding this the statistic itself. So how many? So how many of these voters are good enough at math to understand the metrics that they're basing their decisions off of? Yeah, and I think there's another one where I'm trying to pull it up right now. I think it was Tom Habistro was talking about on the Dan Levitard show, like 
the individual award versus like a team award. And, and you know, the, the defensive metrics aren't perfect. That's another part of this. The defensive metrics are not as easily translatable as a lot of the offensive metrics that we use in other categories. And so I, and I mean, I do think that your team success, and in this case, your team's defensive success should absolutely play a role in it. And so when you're going to be the defensive player of the year, like it doesn't always have to come from the number one defensive team in the league. But that absolutely should play a part. That should not hurt you. If anything, that helps uplift your case for a reason why you are one of the top defenders in the league. And in this case, the defensive player of the year. And then the other part of this, Adam, is I think we talk about, you know, just just removing the metrics from it for just a moment here. When you look at, you know, why no guard has won this since Gary Payton in 95, 96. And there's only been, I think, two wings that have won it, Ron Artest and Kawhi Leonard, however you want to define Giannis, maybe you say three. But in that time frame, it's primarily all big men. And, you know, when you look at it, like they're patrolling the paint. So at some point or another, everybody kind of comes their way, right? And that's a big part of the reason why big men are looked at a little bit differently just as far as, you know, their ability to protect the rim and guarding their man individually. But with Marcus, we've talked about this. He's a big ball one. And the way that Ime Odoka and the Celtics have played this, he's not just guarding on the perimeter. He's not just guarding your point guard, your shooting guard, maybe your wing. He's guarding your power forward, your center, anyone that you put out there. Marcus Smart is switching onto them, and the Celtics are very happy to live with that. And, you know, talking about Zach Lowe again, something that he said that he loves watching almost more than anything else when he's watching a game is the way Marcus Smart boxes out a big. And that's something that you don't see from a lot of guards. So when you want to think about traditionally, any of the guards that maybe could have been or should have been in this conversation in years past but weren't, I think Marcus Smart is simply a different breed with the way that he plays defense, the way that he is the anchor and one of the keys to the Celtics defense, which was the top rated. And for those reasons, I, I, I feel like, once again, if you want to make an argument for somebody else, that's fine, but there's no way, there's absolutely no way Marcus Smart is not justifiably in that conversation. And I think, in my opinion, very, very justifiably won the defensive player of the year. And it is that big ball one, right? It's the fact that you can guard one through five and not be at a disadvantage. Like, you know, Marcus Smart and even Bridges yesterday in his tweet put out when he was congratulating Smart, both of them have been like, yo, we're the front line of defense. Like, we're not just protecting the room. We're switching onto wings. We're getting banged up by guys that are 6'8", 6'10", super strong, far more athletic than we are. We're switching onto fives, you know, seven foot dudes that are just burly, that are really dropping their, when they drop their shoulder, it's not into your chest, it's into your face because mm -hmm. the size discrepancy is so big. Like the value there, when you can genuinely be a, a positive, impactful defender, when switching as a one onto a five is enormous. And it helps kind of, especially like, you know, when your primary center comes off the floor and you're running with backup big minutes. If you've got a guard that can stay on the floor with that backup big and kind of alleviate some of that stress, if the guard switches on, you don't have to worry about scramming guys out or anything. You just keep a bit more continuity in the way your defense is flowing. I think that's like ridiculously important. And to me, that's why Marcus Smart was the front runner for the last few months. And I understand that some people are like, hey, well, before January, nobody was talking about Smart as a defensive player. Of course not. The Celtics weren't good. Exactly. You, you know what I mean? The Celtics got good. At the end of the day, the best defender on the best defensive team in the league, one defensive player of the year. It, it, 
to me, I don't understand. Hard to how- be too upset about that. Like I get, yeah. like I said, if you want, like it, it's a very competitive, you know, list of candidates. So if you want to make an argument, I, I'm open to listen. But to say that he doesn't belong in the combo, which not everyone has said that that hasn't agreed with it, but certainly some have have intimated that that feels so disingenuous to me, and that you're just. I don't know. Either either you're very stuck in an opinion that you have and you just refuse to listen to the other side of that argument or you're trying to get clicks. I don't know. It, it, it's somewhere in that range for me because it doesn't it doesn't make sense how he is not a viable candidate at the very least, regardless of who your final opinion landed on. Or you had a bet and you're upset that your bet didn't hit. That's, That's the only third option. It's the only one that makes sense to me. Okay, I think we've hit on that enough. I think, like, you know, we've both gave our points. I've t- I've said why I kind of done Yeah, like shout out me. to Marcus, though, man. It's, yeah, you know, it's it's just so cool. And did you watch the video of uh, of Gary Payton presenting him with the award? Yeah, that was an unbelievable moment. And it's it's funny. I was reading, I can't believe, I think it was Jay King in the, in the Athletic was talking about it. And I almost forgot for a moment where it was like Celtics alumnus or past Celtic Gary Payton. I was like, oh, that's right. Gary Payton, Gary Payton was on the Celtics for a hot minute. I kind of forget about that with all the guys that have kind of come through the Celtics over the years. But uh, it was a really cool pass of the torch to see Gary Payton give that award to Marcus Smart and talk about how he sees a lot of himself in Marcus Smart's game and how you know Marcus made that tweet uh, about there being an asterisk that you must have the initials GP. And then Gary was saying, well, now you must have the initials GP or MS if you're going to go ahead and win this award. Let's see, how many, like, do you think there's, this is the change in the guard now? Do you think there's more opportunity for guards to win this award moving forwards? I mean, I think that's the fascinating part about it, right? Because if you look at the voting, and, and I think wings apply to this as well, because there's only been two wings that have, that have won the award. And you look this year, Marcus Smart finishes one, Mikhail Bridges finishes two. Like this, might, I feel like this could be a point in time that we look back at and say that, you know, the way that we view this award and who gets, you know, who gets the opportunity to win this award does shift. And I think it goes right along with, you know, what myself, you and Greg have been talking about with this big ball one concept in response to a small ball five. Like that was never a thing that you thought was viable, right? Until, until Draymond Green comes along. So now you get a guy like Marcus Martin. He's won multiple defensive player of the year awards and is constantly on the all in all defensive team as he should be fantastic defender. And so it is curious to wonder if with Marcus getting this award, does it give it more credence to, hey, where do we find the guys like Marcus Smart? And how do we start to reward the guys like Marcus Smart? Does maybe Drew Holiday start to get his name outside of just he's an amazing all-NBA defender, but he's a defensive player of the year candidate? And so I, I don't know the answer, but I do think that's a fascinating storyline to watch because this could be a point in time that we look back to, you know, when we're referencing, you know, historically where this award's at. And it's like, man, it was really that Marcus Smart year where now over the next decade, we've seen four or five other guards win the award mixed in and it becomes a little bit more competitive and not just left to, all right, who are the best, you know, who are the best four to five rim protectors in the league? That's who's going to win the award year in and year out. And I like that it gives it a little bit more nuance. So I like the nuance as well. And I like the fact that, as you say, someone like Drew Holiday can come in there and, theoretically be a defensive player of the year i also like the idea that somebody on the wing can come in and win but i also think that as much as players say these individual awards don't fuel them of course they do to a certain extent 
of course they do so all you're doing now by saying and obviously one year is not going to change this narrative completely but over time if the, if more guards and wings start winning defensive play all it's going to do is enrich the level of defensive talent within the league because it's got play, guards are going to be like hey if i ball out this year on the defensive end i could end up winning defensive player of the year and once you add that uh, bobby manning tweeted this out from Celtic. Well, like shout out to bobby he tweeted it out people now smart has won that defensive player of the year award people will look back at his career in a different light sure yeah it's a you whole know I mean? new element to it you know it's it, it's something that, and you know last time a celtic won it 2008 remember what happened that year adam i think something pretty significant happened that year i don't know can you can you can you remind me what happened in 2008 um um wasn't that the year that somebody won a ring? Ah, that's what it is. That's what yeah. it was. The 17th banner went up that year. So if that, you know, maybe that means something. Maybe maybe this is the year that, you know, Green 18, we just, it just takes having a defensive player of the year. I don't know why we hadn't thought about winning this award more often if it means potentially more championships. Seems like a very simple formula. Yeah, it makes sense, right? It goes hand in hand. Win a, win a DPOY, win a chip. But, you know... With or without the championship, like obviously I'd want I want to see the banner get raised as much as the next guy or girl. Um, I think for me, it's I'm very big on just increasing competition levels across the positions, right? So you know, if we can get a championship now, and then it's like, hey, DPO won two thousand and eight ring, DPO won twenty twenty two ring, DPO won twenty twenty three, twenty twenty four, twenty twenty five ring, ring, ring. All of a sudden, the Lakers are miles behind us, and everybody's super happy. Um, is that going to happen? I don't think so. Well, got to get through the Nets first, so we got to got to get through this next game too, <laughs> coming up on Wednesday night. And we're going to preview that for everybody right after this information from our advertisers. So how are you feeling going into game two? Win game game one by one point. I feel like the Celtics let the the Nets off at certain points in that game. We discussed this during the, the live reaction as well. Um, I also feel like you know KD is not going to shoot as poorly as what he did. He's not going to be as subdued. I don't think Kyrie goes off as much, but maybe he has a sustained performance throughout the quarters rather than just a flurry of just barraging yeah. buckets. I mean, this is the tough part with this Nets team, right? Because number one, like, you know, getting the win feels good. And, and it's, you know, obviously it's way better than the alternative. And you got to think about how it's affecting the Nets mindset as they're kind of just sitting with this game, knowing that they had it. They had this game and then it was ripped away from them at that last minute. And we always talk about if you're an underdog, or if you're the away team in a series, splitting that home and home is usually pretty key. To, to 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 springing the upset or, or taking back home court advantage and so you know i went back and watched the the Kyrie barrage that he put on the celtics end of the third quarter through the fourth quarter and he just made some really tough shots man 
there really wasn't much that I could look at and say, man, we got to switch this up defensively. You know, there was, there, I think there was once where he got isolated on, on Peyton Pritchard because we switched. It's like, ah, maybe we don't switch that. You know, maybe there's, especially without Kevin Durant being on the court, like there's certain times where maybe you kind of, you know, fight over the screen and try to stick with Kyrie rather than giving him a matchup against Peyton Pritchard. But then again, that's one of the few matchups that you're not going to feel comfortable with. Everything else you can kind of live with as long as you make the shot tough. And the shots were tough. He was just hitting them. And then to your point of Kevin Durant, I don't expect him to have, you know, as as poor of a game as, you know, at least poor shooting wise as he had of a game and turnover wise that he had in in game one. So as we look to game two, that's for me really what what the emphasis on is, is what's going to happen when Kevin Durant gets going, because I fully expect that to happen at some point in this game where you have to brace yourself for a Kevin Durant run and and see what that feels like and make sure that, you know, as best you can. Kyrie's not on that run at the same time because that's when it feels like the tides turn in the favor of the Nets if they can put the two of them going on a run together and they can create some separation but if you can keep those kind of at bay and keep their runs separated you know I mean this is going to go for every game I really like the Celtics chances to to come away and and you know head over to Brooklyn up 2-0 because that's one of the things that Boston did well in game one right they limited the amount of two-man game that the Nets were playing there wasn't a lot of Kyrie KD pick and rolls not as many as what I came into the game expecting you know I was kind of expecting them to spam Kyrie KD two-man game to be Mm -hmm. honest with you and it just never really happened like you saw it happen a little bit but I felt like when Kyrie got hot Kyrie got hot without needing KD when KD finally started finding shots he was doing it in his own rhythm they didn't really work as a tandem now as you say when they do do that (laughs) do do um when they do that then it's going to be a completely different ball game for the Celtics defense because it's hard to contain one of these guys and make putting guys in a position to decide whether you help off of KD or you sag off of Kyrie. That's just not a position you want to find yourself in. So limiting those opportunities early, the Celtics did a great job and I think they kind of got an idea about this when the Cavs played them in the playing tournament was they were really good at denying um, entry passes into KD and Kyrie. They were very good at denying the ball. Now, can you sustain that? Because obviously Brooklyn are going to look for wrinkles to exploit when denying the ball. Maybe they're going to see more backup attempts. Maybe you see somebody top locking, so then KD can come over the top, whatever it may be. They're going to, you, if Brooklyn are going to stand a chance, they've got to get their two stars working together. But I feel like we can say the same for Boston, right? Because while Jalen had a good game, Jason had a good game, both solid games. They didn't work as a tandem too often either. Mm-hmm. It was very, it wasn't your turn, my turn, in the sense of isolation, but it was very much like we're going to have a Jalen stretch, then we're going to have a Tatum stretch, right? Figuring out how to get those guys into actions together is just as important as figuring out how to stop KD and Kyrie having their actions together. So that can be said for both sides, both um, sides of the sides of the coin. I don't know why I keep losing my words today. <laughs> um, you know, then the other thing is like, I don't think Nick Claxton gets dragged out to the perimeter as much. He, mm-hmm. you know, they were throwing big bodies on Tatum. I wrote a piece about this that came out earlier, about an hour before we started recording. Of just the different defensive schemes that um, Brooklyn threw, threw at Tatum. You know, first of all, it was just throwing length at him, size and length, throw KD at him, throw Nick Claxton at him. Then it became throwing doubles at, well, throwing switches at him, but switching from KD to Claxton, switching from Claxton to KD. If Claxton's not on the floor, you're doing a KD to Drummond switch. Tatum just saw size and length all the way through that game, right? 
it didn't work. So what do what do how do Brooklyn change that now? What do they do to keep the ball out of his hands next? And this is why I love the playoffs so much, man, because by game four, everybody's sick of each other's faces. They just want to get through the series, but they know everything about each other at yeah. that point, you know? And I think that once you get to like game three onwards, when you've kind of exhausted most of your major like adjustments and everything now is just like slight tweaks a little bit on the fringe, that's when talent shines through. And unfortunately, Brooklyn has the most talented guy. So for me, if Boston won the best chance of coming through this series, they have to take game two. And then, as you said on on the weekend during the live reaction, we start discussing splitting the away games. Because if you can come out of the away games, four games in at three and one, like the series is you're in you pretty know, good shape. It's, it's going to be very, tough very for good. them to yeah. come back and get three straight. And so, you know, I'm looking at like at Brooklyn's roster. And we talked about this with Greg the other day. It's, the Nets just don't have a, a lot in their, you know, in their utility belt for them to really change up, you know, like, like maybe they go to a zone, maybe they try to work in, you know, some more size because they are real small when you're rotating through with Bruce Brown, Seth Curry, Kyrie Irving, Patty Mills, Goran Dragic, like those are all going to be guys that are, are, you know, quote unquote, smaller guys, even though Bruce Brown plays bigger than he is like what do you do if you're the Nets? Do you go a little bit more zone maybe and you try to bring in Blake Griffin, LaMarcus Aldridge? Like if we're being real about it until this theoretical version of Ben Simmons comes back, that that's basically all you got. That's all you really have to make, you know, to make a move. So I'm going to be very curious to see, you know, and I would expect there to be some type of response where even if it's minimal, you know, and Steve Nash played Kessler Edwards for four minutes in in the game, in game one. So I wouldn't be surprised if maybe he sprinkles in four or five minutes of LaMarcus Aldridge or Blake Griffin to see what that look does, to see if there's something there. Because, you know, even though the Celtics won by one and they won at the buzzer, I feel like they left a lot of points on the on the board. And, you know, when we talk about the Nets playing such a small team, the Celtics were relentlessly attacking the basket they won the the you know the battle of points in the paint see i'm pulling it up here i think i had it earlier 56 to 32 second chance points they won 18 to 11 so to me that screams you know even though the net's defense is going to be deficient when you throw in blake griffin lamarcus all just guys that don't have that same that same ability they once had those are both former all-stars their size is at least something that that gives them that hopefully shrinks that gap because I think if the Celtics capitalize on more of the opportunities that they didn't, this is a game that could get away from the Nets. And we've talked all season about how if the Celtics team gets a lead with that defense, it's really hard to close that gap and make a comeback. Granted, they have Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, so there's always a chance, but it still makes it a lot more difficult. Yeah, and I mean, for me, like... Aldridge is one of the guys that I feel like could come in and make a difference in spot minutes, especially as like a dribble handoff guy, you know, big body has that mid range threat in himself. If you start putting him in elbow areas and asking him to initiate dribble handoffs with somebody like KD around the elbow, the defense is going to have a problem because if LaMarcus Aldridge decides to fake the handoff and then kind of just shoot the midi, he's cash. And if you get KD coming off a dribble handoff going middle, it's KD going middle. You know, I mean, it's like literally the worst case scenario. So I feel like LaMarcus Aldridge, while not a swing factor, is definitely somebody I think, you know, in a five-minute spot can really kind of 
give you a completely different element on the offensive mm-hmm. end. Defensively, I don't think he's going to give you much. Offensively, I think he makes the Celtics do things de- on defense that they're not going to be very comfortable doing. Because you, if you're switching that, who are you switching on to KD? How are you going to be able to make sure you can still get a hand in the Marcus Aldridge's face if he fakes that DHO and then pulls up from the elbows? So there's an issue there. With the rim pressure, You, sh- um, I did say this on the last episode as well, but in just in terms of attempts, man, Boston took literally double was, the amount double, of attempts. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It was 36, 36 attempts at the rim for Boston, 18 attempts at the rim for Brooklyn. Uh, 10 from short mid-range. I like to call, call that the floater range. Yep. 10 from short mid-range, Boston, which is anywhere between 4 and 14 feet. Boston took 13, so that was quite even. Now, the long middies is where things look different. Brooklyn took 26 long mid-ranges. That's from the free throw line up to the three-point line. You know, those long mid, those long mm-hmm. mids, the ones that, you know, everybody wanted Tatum to take out of his game. The one the analytics are like, unless you're DeMar DeRozan type guy, you don't shoot them. Brooklyn took 26 of those ones, man. 20, they hit 11, but they took 26. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? That means that Boston took 20. Here's the difference, though. Okay, Brooklyn took 36 mid-ranges in total. That's your short mid-range plus your long mid-range. They made 19. Boston took 20 in total, 13 from the short, 7 from the long. They only made 6. So there's a discrepancy there that I feel like that won't be there every game. Boston will mm-hmm. shoot better than that from that mid-range area. You know, and if you can start, even if you're just consistently at 20, but you hit, you convert in 10 of them or eight of them, it's still a few extra points on the board. Yep. You know what I'm saying? From three, Boston took seven from the corner, hit two. Brooklyn took six from the corner, hit three. From the non-corner threes, Boston took 25 non-corner threes, hit 10 of them. Brooklyn took 18, hit eight. That gave Brooklyn 11 or 24 on threes. Boston had 12 on 32. That that's a problem, right? If, if Brooklyn are only three points short of your total from deep, you know, I mean, Boston hit 12, Brooklyn 33 to 36 in terms of points, but Boston took, what's that, eight more shots. Yeah, and I mean, this is the rebound difference, you know, Boston out-rebounded them 43 to 29, so that You've creates convert, those second opportunities. Yeah, for sure, and, that, and, and that's where I'm saying, for me, Celtics win by one, but they left a lot of opportunities on the table to capitalize and expand that lead. And so that's where, you know, I I don't think that's always going to happen to this team. And so if they can replicate that, but take advantage of those second chance opportunities, even more than what they did in, you know, in game one, that's going to be really tough for the Nets to overcome unless they find a way to counter with, with more size, which then creates other problems. So it's, it's you know, what, what's the poison pill that you're going to take if you're Steve Nash here? Which problem are you going to be okay with having, or how do you balance these problems and and try to find an equation that that, that gives you more success? Yeah, because one of Brooklyn's biggest problems is they've got size, but their size just isn't very mobile. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? They like, need to combine know. all of these guys into like a transformer and then take all of their skill sets and put them in, put them into one player. Like they all have different skill sets, but they don't, they can't play and do them all at the same time. Yeah. Like Drummond, you, you put Drummond on the perimeter. It's not going to end well. You put Lamarcus Aldridge on the perimeter. It's not going to end well. The only one you can feel comfortable with there is Claxton. Yeah. You know? So I do agree with you. I think without Ben Simmons in terms of defense, especially, Steve Nash's hands are kind of tied. Now for Boston, I'd like to see a little bit more Peyton Pritchard. Again, as I said, Boston went 12 of 32 from deep. I feel like plugging Peyton Pritchard in for a few extra minutes might be the difference between going 12 of 32 and 15 of 32. Doesn't sound a lot, but that's still an extra nine points. 
Do you know what I mean? And all of a sudden, that's a 10-point win. So, and the reason I'm saying Pritchard, I know that he's obviously, they're going to target him on defense, but he's by far your best three-point shooter. You have to give him some more opportunity. I, I felt like he was very marginally used in game one. Yeah, he only, he only played eight and a half, eight and a half yeah. minutes for, for Peyton Pritchard. He was really the only guy in the rotation that, you know, had a very limited use. Other than that, every other guy that played was was over 20 minutes. You know, Tice played 20 minutes. Grant played 21 minutes. Those are the next closest guys as far as a, a minutes distribution goes. And I think especially early in the game or that middle part of the game, there probably needs to be a little bit more Peyton Pritchard. Because I do think late, you're not going to be able to. And I think, you know, we've seen this with the Celtics and with Ime throughout the, you know, especially towards the latter part of the season, that that closing unit, you pretty much know which four are going to be out there. And then who's that fifth? Is it going to be Derek White? We did see at times in the right matchups, Peyton Pritchard got his way in there. Grant has seen some minutes in there. And, you know, obviously with Rob out, you know who those other four are going to be. Marcus, the Jays, and Al. They're they're a given that they're going to be out there. But I think as we get later into the fourth and that becomes kind of like a Kyrie moment like we saw, you probably can't have Peyton Pritchard out there quite as much. They're just going to go get that switch. They're going to go make that happen. Now, maybe you blitz that. And if Kevin Durant's not on the court, there's less options that can go can go and beat you and go hurt you. And, and maybe you're okay living with that for small stretches. But I do think in the middle parts of the game, there can be some opportunity for Peyton Pritchard to get some more run and just give you, like you said, a little bit more of a window with that three-point shooting. He only had one three-point shot in the game. He hit it. But maybe you want to see him get three, four looks from three and give yourself a little bit more margin for error when it comes to, you know, putting points on the board earlier in the game. Yeah. And you're also giving an extra bit of space in for your slashes. For sure. You know what I mean? You're going to get, it's not, I'm not saying that the floor can like wildly opens up, but but you have to respect the Pritchard's um, range. You you can't sag off a guy like Pritchard because he's going to hit you from the logo and he's he's confident enough and crazy enough to shoot a logo free midway through a tight game in the playoffs because he believes in his shot that much so you have to pick him up high and that obviously starts to force like the shape of your defense whether whether you're going man whether you need everybody playing up to touch on whatever it may be the shape of your defense kind of starts to malfunction because somebody has to come up a little bit higher than what your scheme kind of permits because Pritchard will fire if you give him enough room so, you know, I'm not saying he needs to be a 20-minute guy. You just bump him up to, tw- tw- I don't know, 12 to 14 minutes. I mm-hmm. think that's enough extra. But make sure you're giving him a few usage, a bit more usage. Put the ball in his hands a bit more as a catch-and-shoot guy. If you're not comfortable with him breaking guys down after dribble, fine, I get it. But feed that guy, drive, yeah. collapse, kick to Pritchard because there is no one on this team that is a more reliable three-point shooter than Peyton Pritchard right now. So with all this said, Adam, let, let's talk about what do you think is actually going to happen in this game? What's your, what's your prediction for game two? I think we're going to see some defensive adjustments off Brooklyn. I think we'll see Boston kind of clean up a few of their errors on the defensive end as well. I felt like they um they miscommunicated a few times. There was a few times I felt Especially like... Especially in that collapsed. second half, there definitely yeah. seemed to be a, a, a bit of a, a miscommunication lapse. Some overhelping a little bit. Uh, I felt like sometimes they helped off uh, off of the weak side man a bit too early. Sometimes they're a bit too late. So they, I think their timing will be a bit better. Offensively, I think the Celtics are going to look to do a little bit more in terms of driving kick. I felt like they penetrated a bunch. And to me, they're going to do that again. And I expect them to pressure the rim. But I do kind of want them to start using that rim pressure and that kind of like rim gravity, I guess is what we're going to call it. 
as a way to generate some extra freeze because I do feel like sometimes the kick out was there, but they didn't take it, right? Um, especially when it's like Tatum and Brown, Brooklyn were really packing the paint and it just felt like there was open freeze everywhere that were kind of getting passed up. So I'd expect that to get brushed up on as well. But I don't expect anything massive to be different. I just think it's going to be minor tweaks to coverages and minor tweaks to the way they kind of look to initiate some of their offense. Yeah, I think on both sides, with as competitive as that game was, I think, like you said, I think there'll be minimal changes in this game. I think depending on the result of this game, maybe games three or four when the series shifts to Brooklyn, there might be some more adjustments that that, that you'll see schematic-wise, but I think there'll be small tweaks in this one. And ultimately, you know, like we talked about, I'm not expecting Kevin Durant to have the same shooting performance that he did. He was 9 of 24 with six turnovers. You know, I'm expecting a much different Kevin Durant game. And as well as the Celtics defended him, and the Celtics, especially Al Horford and, and Grant Williams deserve a ton of credit for the way they deed him up. Jason Tatum as well. KD's just that special of a guy. So I'm expecting a big KD game, whether that comes in the form of 30 to 35 points, maybe 40. Like, you know, with KD, nothing's ever off the table. So I'm expecting a big KD game, and I'm very curious to see how the Celtics can withstand that and try to also keep Kyrie at bay because that was really one of the keys Kyrie's going off, but KD also was not going off. So you can if you can hold one of them, in relative check while the other one's going off you're still going to be in pretty good shape and like we said there were some missed opportunities but with that you know i would expect if this game is close late it's hard for me to fathom Kyrie and kd letting two games late that are super close like coming down to the final possessions get away so if this game gets real close late Part of me feels like like the Nets might be able to pull this out, but I think if the Celtics can get that separation, it's going to be really hard for them to close that gap, even with those two guys. And so I think if the Celtics can can build the lead and, and sustain like what they had in the third quarter of game one and not have that late run from Kyrie or from KD and coming in game two, I think the Celtics are going to be able to pull away with this one a little bit. So if it's tight, I'm a little nervous about KD just, just, you know, having that, that great, that aura of greatness to him that won't let two games get away. But I think the Celtics are are going to have a good chance to maybe put some separation between themselves and the nets throughout the game and maybe pull this one away in a little bit easier of a fashion in double digits. So if it's close, I'd lean nets. If the Celtics can maintain a lead, I think that's how they pull this one out. So here's my final question for you before we let everybody get out of here. If, just saying, if the Nets manage to win this game and the series Mm -hmm. is 1-1 heading back to Brooklyn, where does your confidence level stand? It stands the same. I mean, I I, I fully expect KD and Kyrie with their level of, of greatness as players to get at least two games. If, you know, for sure one and probably two games or potentially this this could go seven games you and i both were kind of on that fence of man like those guys are so good i, I maybe i just say seven because i, I think they're going to get they're going to get a couple of these but we ended up settling on six because i just think there's that much of a difference between once you go from kd and Kyrie to the rest of that team first let's just say you look beyond tatum and, and jalen brown and Oh, look at that. The defensive player of the year is sitting there, plus a whole bunch of other guys that are far more talented than the depth on the other side. But I I think my confidence level would remain pretty much the same. I still think this is a six-game series, seven-game if we're really seeing some special stuff from Kyrie and KD. But it it, it really honestly wouldn't alter it too much if the Nets were were to pull out this game too. Yeah, I completely agree. That's pretty much where my mentality is as well. The only thing I would say is I'm a little bit less confident about a game seven just because... 
as I said earlier, your adjustments are all pretty much exhausted at that point. And when you come down to who could shine the brightest, then, you know, I think yeah. Tatum has. Game seven will be terrifying. You know, even, yeah. even at home, game seven is when it would become terrifying because then everything I just applied to game two, where it's like, okay, we can come back from that. You can't come back from it in game seven if KD has the ball with down 30, you know, with 30 seconds left and it's him and Kyrie. Like, there might not be enough time to come back from that. So then that becomes a terrifying proposition within itself. But I think because of, of the difference in the overall depth between these two teams, I still think regardless of what happens in game two, Boston. Celtics should pull this out in about six. Yeah, I'm, I'm completely with you. I'm hundred percent busting in six uh, to the point where I'd be willing to have it tattooed on me, but I'm not going to do that because that's <laughs> silly. Uh, we'll leave it there. Please don't call me out on that tattoo idea. It was just said in the moment. Uh, it's not going to happen. I've got enough tattoos that I don't remember having done as it is. Um, and <laughs> you can catch us again on Friday when we'll be discussing what we saw in game two and what we're hoping to see in game three because the, the games are falling very well for our podcasting schedule. I feel like we owe Adam Silver a letter of thanks. Um, <laughs> until then, make sure to share this episode on your social platforms. I've really enjoyed having people DM me um, based on some of the more less non-basketball discussions that we had. Feel free to keep doing that. Feel free to DM Will. Um, we'll super cool. If you don't want to speak to any of us, maybe Greg's your guy, DM Greg, or start a group chat with all three of us and get the full three man wave experience. We're open to that. We're cool people, or at least we like to think so, especially Greg. Greg likes to think he's the cool teacher. For um, sure. Sorry, Greg. Uh, until next time, we're the, uh, no, we're not the three man wave. We're two heart, we're two thirds of the three man wave. Um, everybody have a good one. I'm running out of things to say. Peace. Peace. Ain't disrespecting you haters, I ain't sweating your opinion Y'all been testing my patience, never did it for a check I've been impressed with the famous, just rather be creative Than stressing my wages, ageless Every time I lay a verse down, one play at a time Keep it moving like a first down And at the end of the day, I can say that I made this MJ never made it to the major, still he chased greatness Expected that he might fail, and I might too I might never get to pop champagne Celebrating with the crew, this ain't everything I am It's something that I do